Well, good morning. It's so good to see each of you here today and just want to welcome those of you at home. Uh, we can't wait to see you someday, but we know that you're out there. Um, my name is Jim Jackson. I'm a family minister here at Heritage, and I get the privilege today to get to share the word with you, and I'm grateful for Pastor Marty letting me have this opportunity because I know that um, he has uh, fire in his bones and uh, would uh, rather be up here, but he's uh, letting me get a little fire out of my bones as well today, and so I'm grateful for that. So the story goes of a couple of folks on a park bench. One is a young man, one is an older man, and of course there's social distancing, right? And, uh, but he, uh, he pulls out his phone, the young man, and he dials up a number, and the older man just can't help but uh, hear the conversation and the conversation goes like this. The young man goes, um, uh, sir, are you looking for a, a helpful, resourceful, dependable young man at your business? And he hears him say, oh, you already have one? Well, thank you very, very much. And he hangs up his phone and he gets up and he, the older man notices the young man go, yes. And uh, the old man is kind of uh, puzzled, and so he kind of confesses that he's been eavesdropping. And he says, young man, I'm so sorry. It sounds like you've been rejected a job. And he goes, oh, no, no, no. Um, I'm the capable young man. I was just calling my job, checking up on myself. <laughs> and so here's my question to start us off today. If you called your place of employment... Would you or would I get the same response? And so what I want to talk to you today about not just our work ethic. And so young people, I'm really talking to you guys right over here. But if you're a younger person, fifth and sixth graders in the bridge, I'm talking to you and children. And hey, if you're retired, don't think, well, hey, I'm off the hook now. Because this is more than work ethic. This is about your character. And its character is who you are when no one is looking. Those you work for, uh, no, when no one's looking, what are you like? I'll just give you some disturbing statistics. Some people, this really speaks to them. Some people, it doesn't. But it's just interesting in our day today, the smartphone has caused some incredible difficulties in businesses. In fact, it is estimated that in lost production per year, it's about $15 billion worth because of people on their smartphone doing their own kind of things instead of the work that they should be doing. That estimates out to every person who's in the work field wastes about eight hours a week on their own situations, what they're looking through, what they're scrolling through. In fact, many are scrolling through things that their companies have banded on their particular computers. Christian workers, it is leveled against them that, uh, hey, presumption is a big thing, like a Christian hires a Christian. And what has been said is they, they presume that because they're in the same family that they get special treatment. They don't have to maybe do as much. Others say about working for Christians, they have the old uh, thing about, you know, it's a labor of love, and so pay them way little. Kind of saying like, hey God, we'll keep them uh, poor, you keep them humble, kind of a thing. 
And often that is said about even Christians. And here's something that I think is for all of us. Young people, again, I hope that you're hearing these things. Let me make sure where I'm at. The average person will work 90,000 hours in their lifetime. And my question is, how many of those hours will be honoring to the Lord? So I wonder if you would take your Bible, and I want you to turn to the first book, Genesis. For most of us, we've been reading through the Bible starting the first year. If you have not been doing that, you can still at the Welcome Center get a guide, and we as a church are kind of reading through the Bible. And this particular passage I was reading through my quiet time, and God really spoke to my heart about this. This is why I'm speaking on this, because God really spoke to my heart, which I think he would really want to say to your heart as well. If you know anything about Joseph, the guy with the coat of many colors, he was the favored son, but he was the hated brother because of that favoritism. And if you know the story, we're going to pick it up after he has already been sold into slavery by his brothers. Now, for me, I have never heard this particular portion uh, uh, ever talked about much. In fact, usually it just goes from sold into slavery and then right to Potiphar's wife in that incident. But we're going to deal with these first verses, if you will, Genesis 39, 1 through 6, and just listen as we walk through it. Now, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. And Potiphar, the officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had bought, brought him down there. So again, get it, he is there against his will. He has been sold into slavery by his brothers. He is in a strange place. It's against his will. You can only imagine he's either frightened, bewildered, uh, whatever his emotions would be. I can't even fathom what they are. But just listen to what it says in starting verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became successful. It means to exceed. He became an exceeding. He excelled at what he did. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. And here's probably my first question before we go any further. What did Potiphar see? Like, here's a slave. He's probably had many slaves in his house. But what does he see in Joseph that maybe he has not seen in any other of his slaves? I don't know if he knows his story yet. I think maybe later on in life he hears more of it. But what do you think Potiphar saw in Joseph? He saw something different. Here's a suggestion. I think he saw faith in action because you know this, right? Your faith is a dead faith unless it's a faith that's in action, right? Unless it is living out what you believe, it is a dead faith. And yet he saw in Joseph a faith that was active and living. But he also saw this. He saw a character on display. He saw a young man who was there against his will, and yet he saw something different in him than he saw in any other slave. Read on, if you will, with me. We know this about Joseph, all right, For we read on. We know this in Hebrews that Joseph was a man of faith. Later on in his life, I think in his young life as well. 
Look, if you will, the rest of it says, So Joseph found favor in his sight, and he attended him, and made him overseer of his house, and he put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house, and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And blessing the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. Now, you and I do not know the time span of six verses. But in these six verses, Joseph has gone from what? A common slave to now an overseer in Potiphar's house. It really doesn't matter the amount of time. What matters is that Potiphar has seen something in Joseph he has not seen in anybody else. In fact, he probably hasn't seen this any of his Egyptian-like friends or family. He has seen something that is absolutely different in a man like this. And so my, my question is, what do you think it was, faith in action? How, how did that play out? How, what was the attitude of Joseph there being against his will? And I'm not saying that you're in your job against your will. Hopefully you're not. But like in your job or at your home or the things that you do in life, like what is the attitude that comes across to people? What, what kind of character comes out in difficult situations? What do people see? So what I want you to do, if you will, I want you to turn a hard right, if you will, and go to 1 Peter. And then I'm going to make it a little bit easier. We'll walk kind of systematically through a few verses. But first of all, turn, if you will, to 1 Peter chapter 3. If you know about 1 Peter, Peter is writing to some persecuted believers who are going through incredible trial And as he talks to them, he is saying to them a few things that, honestly, uh, if I was to write to someone in suffering, I don't know if I would be saying these kind of things. But that's why he is inspired by God to write these things, because he says this, if you will, in verses 15 and 16. So remember, they're persecuted, they're under harsh conditions, and Peter says to them, "...but in your hearts honor Christ and the Lord is holy." always being prepared to make a defense, an answer. Whenever you read the word defense, you might kind of like being very defensive. But Peter is talking about uh, giving an answer, and he'll talk about not being defensive in a moment. But he says to make an answer to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And so Peter's saying to these folks who are under incredible, like some are imprisoned, some of their family members have been now martyred, some of them have lost their careers and their jobs and their livelihood, some of them may be displaced, like they've been run out of their hometown, their houses or whatever. And he says to them, be in such a way that when people see all this going on in your life, they see something different. And they would ask, like, why do you have such hope? You know what hope means? Why do you have such confidence? Why does it seem like you have an expectancy that we don't see in other people? In other words, they're up close enough to you that in difficult times, you're responding in 
just so much different than what the world would be responding. And you're responding with like, you have hope. But not only do you have hope, but listen to what he says, yet you are doing it in gentleness, like there's a calmness about you. You're doing it with respect. It says, and having a good conscience. It means no one can say like, you've offended me and you've not made it right. You have a good conscience. You, you've like not offended someone. Uh, even your offenses towards God, you've been confessed up. And people are looking at your life and they're like, it's so different. Can you imagine Potiphar looking at Joseph thinking like, why does he seem to have such a different spirit about him? What makes him stand out than anyone else? Could it be that even when he would answer, he would do it with hope? He would do it with gentleness. He would do it with respect. He did it with a clear conscience even towards Potiphar. So I wonder if you will now go back to Old Testament, turn to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs, if you will, chapter 22. And we're going to start there and we'll just walk going to the right. While you're turning there on the right side or the left side in your notes, so much if you will look at a quote by a guy named Warren Wiersbe. Warren Wiersbe wrote a little bitty book. It was called The Integrity Crisis, and he writes just a few things there that I've chosen. It says, a person with integrity is not divided or merely pretending. He or she is whole. Life is put together. Things are working together harmoniously. People with integrity have nothing to hide, and they have nothing to fear. They have a single heart. In other words, you know that their heart, their love is, first of all, to God. They have a single mind, which is opposite of being double-minded, which a person who's what? Double-minded is just unstable in all their ways. And so not only a single heart, a single mind, they have a single will, and that is that they would serve their master, one master they would serve. So Proverbs chapter 22, verse 11. He who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious will have one, have the king as his friend. So I want to read that again. I want you to think in the New Testament, is there anything that sounds like that? He who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious will have the king as his friend. Do you remember Jesus saying that out of the overflow of your heart, your mouth will speak? Whatever is overflowing in your heart, whatever is overflowing in my heart, either good or evil, it is going to come up out of the well, right? The opening, it's going to come out of my mouth. In fact, you know this to be true, but our mouth will always tell on our hearts. Whatever is in your heart will eventually come out of your mouth. Now, can you imagine Joseph in the harsh environment he was? It was obvious he had a pure heart, and obviously he had gracious words. Because hear me, you work for a guy named Potiphar who was supposedly the head of the executioner's 
You just say one word. You have one bad attitude. You know, you just miss one cup of coffee and you could lose your head kind of a deal. And so the thing is, don't you know, he probably had an incredibly pure heart that had speech. My encouragement to all of us is not just having a pure heart, but you see what it says? That you love, you love having a pure heart. Do you love having a pure heart? Because it will always come out whatever's in your heart. In the same chapter, Proverbs 22, look at, if you will, verse 29. Do you see a man skillful? Some of y'all says diligent or careful or wise. Do you see a man that is skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Skillful. You. And we're not talking just about your work. We're talking about in your home. Young people, we're talking about with your schooling, with how you treat your friends. Children, we're talking about how you act in your home and the chores that you are given in your home. Like, are you skillful? In other words, are you careful with them? Are you diligent with them? Again, if you will look in the quotes, I'm going to use every one of the quotes. One of our missionaries that we support in Mexico, Greg McClanahan, has this thing. I have probably heard him say a thousand times over 30 years now. He'll say, good enough is the enemy of excellence. Like, oh, that's just good enough. Or have you ever heard this one? It's good enough for government work. Like, you know, if I was flying in a spaceship, I wouldn't like that very much, right? You know, that's just good enough kind of a deal. Uh, my encouragement to you is if that statement is in your vocabulary, that you erase it. Like, don't say ever again, good enough. Because good enough is really the enemy of excellence. In fact, in a particular devotional that for the first time ever I've picked it up, it's been around for 75 years now. It's called The Utmost for His Highest. All Chambers says this, do ordinary things extraordinarily well. Do ordinary things, just the ordinary, everyday, mundane things, the things at your home, the things at your work, the, th the things wherever, like they've just become ordinary. But do them extraordinarily well. And my question would be this, because in my journal, I wrote this, what are some ordinary things that have become sloppy? What are some ordinary things in your life that have become sloppy or cut in the corners at or it's just good enough? It's just good enough for who? Because you realize it's a reflection of who you are and it's a reflection of who you are doing it 
for. And we're going to get to it, and you know where we're getting to, right? Because you and I are to do everything as a follower of Christ. We're to do everything we do as unto the... Yeah. And that's not just a Sunday school answer. You and I are to do everything. And so when we say good enough, is it really good enough for our Lord? Take, if you will, now a hard right. Go to Romans chapter 12 in the New Testament. As you get there, Romans chapter 12, Romans 12, verse 11. It's there in your notes. Hopefully you can turn, uh, maybe stay ahead there. Romans 12, 11. It says this, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. So it's not just three things, but just read it all together. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Now, I have a question for you, and so just hang with me. Water, if it's at 211 degrees, is what? Young people, what is it? Water at 211 degrees is what? It's hot water. It's pretty hot. It's pretty hot water. Water at 212 degrees is what? Boiling. The difference is one degrees, just one degrees. You've heard this before. If you're flying an airplane and you're going to New York City and you allow yourself to veer off one degrees, you're not going to land in New York City. In fact, if you're going a particular way, you're going to land out in the middle of the ocean. One degrees is all that takes. In fact, in you and I, in our zeal, or the word fervent means to what? Boil. Is one degrees. I guess my question would be, and here is my question I wrote in my journal, where is it I need to turn it up for my zeal for the things of God one degree? Because most of the things I wrote are things that you would never see. But here's the truth about things that you and I, we never see about one another. They show up, don't they? Like you're sloppy in something that no one sees, like that you do personally, and you're a little sloppy, you've kind of slacked off in a particular area, and yet it will wind up showing up in your public life, will it not? I mean, just a little bit here, a little bit there, or a little bit compromised, or a little bit good enough here, and then all of a sudden it becomes a pattern of life, and it starts showing up in your life, public life as well. And young people, that's why I'm talking to you a whole lot, because at your age, this is showing up even now. And it's not like Hey, I'm going to do these things. And hear me, I'm not saying you're not doing it. Hey, does this make you all nervous when I'm just staring at you all? Anyway, so deal is, uh, it's not like you're going to get to be my age, and that's way too far. You've got to start now. Like these things need to start showing up in your home life, in your personal life. Now, uh, young people, if you're a fifth and sixth grader, these things need to show up in your life now. You, you've got to start practicing these things 
now. If you think you're going to wait and become an old person and then start doing these things, that's not going to happen. It probably won't happen. It can, but it probably won't. And it needs to begin like now in your life, in your personal life, in your home life, in Again, your chores or the little things that your parents ask you to do, like ordinary things, are you going to do them ordinarily well, or are you going to like put a little extra into it? Are you going to do maybe a, a, a little more? In fact, I've only had two original thoughts in my whole life, and one of them I'm questioning. <laughs> but this one, I've never heard anyone say this, and so this is something I preach to myself all the time. And I hope you do that. Do you preach to yourself? Like, I growing up, I used to hear this. People who talk to themselves are crazy. Do you know what? Every one of us in this room are crazy then. We all talk to ourselves. In fact, you talk to yourself more than anybody else ever talks to you. I talk to myself more than anyone talks to me. And the thing is, I'm either telling myself the truth or I'm telling myself a lie and here's one thing I tell myself a lot. Jim, be at war with mediocrity. You know what mediocrity is? It's good enough. It's sloppy. It's uh, 210 degrees. It's not all my effort. It's with no zeal. It's just getting by kind of thing. Be at war with mediocrity. If you will, turn right. Go to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. Now, here's the question I ask you before we read this. What imagery do you hear being spoken about? So, what image comes to your mind when we read this verse? Verse 9. And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. One more time. What comes to your mind? What image? And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. What imagery comes to your mind? Anyone? Farmer? You bet. You get that due season. You get that in reaping. What a farmer he works hard, very hard at mundane things and often does not see the results until when? Harvest time. For many of you in this room, I've been there. I'm still there in, in certain areas of my life. But you have been working diligently and yet you're not seeing a lot of fruit. You're wondering like, Am I doing it right? Is it worth doing? Is it worth doing what we've already talked about, giving your all and being like fervent and being zealous? Is it worth doing it? Like I haven't really seen a lot of reward from there. And yet this is not the only time it's spoken of in the New Testament. Paul's spoken about being a farmer many times to where you and I, we will labor oftentimes at some mundane things There'll be nobody seen, but he sees them, and you're doing these things, and you're wondering, is it making any progress? Is there any fruit? Can you imagine being Jeremiah? Remember him? Remember what God told him? 
hey, listen, I'm calling you. You go preach. By the way, you'll have no converts for your whole ministry. Would you like think, well, I might go do something else then? But yet he faithfully, his whole entire life, did what God told him to do, knowing that if he was doing it for the Lord, ultimately it is God who does what? You and I sow, what does God do? Yeah, it's his responsibility. You and I are to continually sow and not give up. You and I are to continually work hard now. There will be future reward. You and I in heaven, there will be incredible future reward. But you and I must work hard now. If you will, go over to Philippians chapter 2. I've already gotten to, uh, I see my point. I'm a guy and I can't even operate a remote control. That's amazing. So while you're looking that up, don't be looking at the screen. All right. Philippians 2, 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling. Now, I don't know Greek. So that's why you have a, a computer with a Bible software where it can help you. Or go ask Marty. So, But this word grumbling in Greek sounds like what grumbling is. It just sounds like grumbling. So do not grumble or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So back up, grumbling. Grumbling is an emotional rejection of God's providence in your life. Now just think about it. Whenever you've grumbled, have you ever thought you're grumbling against God? I mean, think about it. Uh, you might be grumbling because someone asks you to do a certain thing that you really don't want to do. Or at your job, you're asked to do something. Or in your home, you're asked to do something. And when you're grumbling, you're just grumbling against your parents or against someone at school or, or someone that you work for. But have you ever wondered or taken it further that when you grumble, as a follower of Christ, you and I, when we grumble, we are grumbling against what God has allowed or deemed right in our life for the present moment. So our grumbling goes way past mom and dad, but it goes to the God who gave mom and dad to be your earthly authority in your life. You and I, when we grumble at our job, it's ultimately going way past who we work for, and we're grumbling that God has, like, ripped us off, put us in a bad place, don't like this circumstance. Disputing is a questioning or a criticism towards God. Like when we dispute or criticize about what either we've been asked to do or the amount of or whatever it is that are disputing or questioning, ultimately, God, you really don't know what you're doing. 
Like you're either giving me too much or you're not giving me enough or I'm in the wrong place kind of a deal. And he says that you and I are to not do these things. Why? That we may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and a twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. And like this says, grumbling and disputing, all it does is darkens the light of Christ in you. It darkens the light of Christ in me in an already dark world. Now back to Joseph. Can you imagine of all the harshness that he has experienced that to witness someone that does not grumble or complain in the midst of what he is in, that that would catch Potiphar's attention? Do you think that was God's whole purpose in it? If you will, real quickly, let's turn to one other, Colossians. Just turn on right. Colossians chapter 3, and this is where we'll end with today. Colossians 3, verses 22 through 24. It says, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service. In other words, not just when the boss is looking, not just when your parents are looking, not just when kicker is looking, not just whenever the school teacher or the principal is looking. Like you're just looking around, making sure if someone's watching, you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, but other times goofing around. Not as eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity or genuineness of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily with all your heart. The 212 degrees at the boiling point. The fervency. Why? As for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. You and I, in any situation that God has allowed you and I to be in, you and I are to be doing it as unto the Lord. One more quote. And that quote is Jesus. And Jesus said, if you'll remember, in the greatest sermon ever preached, he gave this one-liner. In fact, this one line might be the one thing that sticks with you. I hope it does. For me, it has stuck with me. In fact, in our family, when our little girls grew up, we would always talk about, hey, go the extra mile. And our daughters still do this at times, like, hey, would you bring me some peanut M&Ms, my favorite of all time, and um, just bring me like four M&Ms, and they'd bring five, and they'd go, go the extra mile, Dad, right? So, you know, to this day they do that. Go the extra mile. Hey, you probably know this already, but just a reminder, get this picture in your mind. You, as a young man... And let's just say, for equal rights, as a young woman, if you were a Jew, the Romans required you, by law, to carry anything they wanted for a mile. So you know what they did? They're the original mile marker makers. I just made that up. Mile marker makers. 
So what they did is they went out and measured out miles and they put stakes up everywhere. So that whenever a Roman came by and told you, pick up that pack and carry it, you knew that for a mile you had to do that and then you'd throw it down, run off cussing or whatever you would do. And Jesus said, hey, instead of that, because you know what going the extra or the second mile means, right? It means to do more than is required or expected. Hey, in our world, this is huge. Because in our world, people do less than is required and none more than expected. Oftentimes. And even Christians can be like this as well. But Jesus said, hey, here's what I want you to do. When you're compelled to go one mile, which is a requirement, and it's expected, when you get to that mile marker, just keep on going. Because, see, the first mile is required. The second mile, the third mile, the fourth mile is your choice. And because I've changed your life, I want you to do more than just what this world requires or expects. Because can you imagine being a Roman or like a Roman soldier and a young man picks up his pack and he's expecting that he'll get grumbling, which is probably not a wise thing if you're carrying something for a Roman soldier, but like after the miles you're running off. And yet the mile marker comes and the guy just or the young lady just keeps on carrying the pack and can you imagine maybe the third or whatever, and all of a sudden, like, he says, hey, you know what? You're not required anymore to do this. And your thing is, no, I, I choose to do this. Why? Back to the first Peter. Like, why? What's different about you than everybody else? Why do you do more than is required? Why do you do more than is expected? And then an incredible open door to talk about your Lord. The Lord who has changed your life. That you and I live in a dark and twisted world. So when you think about what does it mean that your light shines different in a dark world? It's how do you respond how do you react when difficulty, hardship, loads come? How do you and I react? And hear me, children in your home, young people, wherever you're at, you and I, it doesn't matter if you're a stay-at-home mom, stay-at-home dad, retired, it does not matter because all of us are still in this world. You and I are still on display in a wicked, wicked world. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that you'd help us with the example of Joseph today. I pray that all these passages and many more of things that you want us to be a part of, I pray that oftentimes world can just get us down and dark and mundane and just do as little as possible 
I pray you'd help us as your children and your followers. We'd be different. Lord, it would do such a difference in marriages, in friendships, in families, in schools, in work environments. If just go the extra mile. Just do a little more than is required or expected. Ultimately, that we would do it as for you. This week, these young people will go to Camp Barnabas. There'll be things that they will do that no one will really see them uh, doing. There'll be projects they'll work on. But I pray they'd realize they do those things as unto you and ultimately a blessing to many people who would never get to experience such things. I, I pray children in our home would realize that the little chores and the things they're asked to do, ultimately they do it unto you. I pray for even people who are retired. They don't go and clock in and clock out. But Lord, their lives would be as they are doing everything they do as unto you. Find us faithful, fill us with your spirit that we could do such things. In fact, I've realized more and more the things you command, you empower and enable us to be able to do. Help us to be able to see those things. Help us to yield those things. Help us to call out for your help and enablement in certain things. That, Lord, you would know our heart. It's not divided. That our mind is not double. Our will, it is single towards you and you alone. May others be blessed and benefited from it. But ultimately, that you would be pleased. And in these things I ask. I ask him in your powerful name who is able to help us in all these things. Amen.